Good morning. Because one person said good morning. That's not cool. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, my name is Sergey, and I want to welcome you again to the Tap Church. Uh, just welcome you. And if we have not met, I would love to meet, meet you and get to know you. So we, have, we do a class. We do a class every few months here at the church called the Foundations Class. One of those classes that helps people to get to know us. It's a class that you can ask questions, and, and we go through our doctrine and what we believe as a church. At the same time, uh, we walk through our vision and mission, and, and, and it's, just a, it's a good time of just having a conversation. We also use this class as a vehicle to, um, to our membership. And uh, I always leave a lot of uh, room for questions in the class. And there's always a few questions that happen every class. Uh, we have, every time we have done this class, there's a few questions that always come up. And these questions are, what do you believe about baptism? What do you believe about baptism? What about infant baptism? What do you believe about infant baptism? What do, do I need to get rebaptized? That, that's a question that always comes up. What, about, what do you believe about communion? And is it a closed communion? Is it an open communion? And so and those are great, great questions. Those are fantastic questions that, that you may have had. You may have even asked those questions. And the answers to these questions are different, different throughout the Christian community. So you might be coming from a different church, and that church might believe something different than what we believe. And, and that's why maybe those questions come up. And different churches believe differently about baptism and about the Lord's table. And maybe you remember a few months ago, I mentioned this, and I talked about how there's doctrines, doctrines that are non-negotiable versus doctrines that are secondary. And I want to remind us of that conversation again because of what we're talking about today. There's several doctrines that are non-negotiable doctrines in the Christian community. Uh, things like the Trinity, the Word of God, the fall of humanity. Jesus' perfect, sinless life, death, and resurrection in our place for our sins and salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, right? So those are the things that are non-negotiable. Those are the things that when you hear about, you take them and you put in your hand, consider it to be a closed doctrine. So you put them in your hand and you close your hand on them. And you call them closed-hand doctrines. And if anyone denies or tries to redefine any of those Doctrines, it simply means they are moving away from the Christian community. They're moving away from what the church traditionally believed. Uh, there are also open-hand doctrines that we must hold more loosely and graciously. These doctrines are important, but they're secondary. They're secondary. They're secondary in that godly, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving people who study the Scripture can still disagree over them. Things such as spiritual gifts, or style of worship, or mode of church government, and the doctrine that we will study today, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, this doctrine, the, the, the baptism and the Lord's Supper, this doctrine is kind of a closed hand and open hand doctrine. And let me, let me explain. Closed hand around these two sacraments, or these two ordinances, as a body of Christ, we must be practicing them. Jesus commanded his followers to practice these two ordinances, uh, but here's where we need to open our hand, and we open our hand on how we practice them. 
godly, again, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving people who study the Scripture can still disagree over them. And I'm not saying that how we practice is not important. It is important, but it's secondary. It's secondary. At each church in town, if you go to their church and you ask what you believe about this, we will, we will differ. So today we will look at some other, uh, so what, what, what are some way, other ways people view these doctrines, and then we'll look at the way we view them and why we view them. So we're, we're going to unpack them. It's going to be a, not a heady, but more scholarly kind of sermon topic. Um, so I, don't, I want you to constantly check your heart as we're talking through this. Uh, trying to connect these, these things like baptism and Lord's table. And, and, and don't just kind of check out, but, but, but connect, it, connect it to your heart. Also, I was supposed to say this earlier and I forgot. Uh, there's a Honda... Accord or Civic that has a hatch, hatchback, is that an English word? Hatchback. It's blocking somebody out there. They asked if you could move. I, I don't know if you drive a Honda Accord or hatchback. Anyways, somebody out there asked us to tell you this. So anyways, if you do drive this, you're blocking some people off. Sorry. Um, anyways, uh, uh, sometimes I forget things. Okay, so read our doctrine statement. And then we're going to unpack it and try to apply it to our hearts. So, baptism and the Lord's Supper, this is what we believe. We believe that baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordained by the Lord Jesus himself. Each are outward expressions of inward realities. Baptism is connected with entrance into the new covenant community, representing union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. The Lord's Supper is connected with ongoing covenant renewal as a remembrance of the finished work of Christ on the cross. These are God's gift to his people and commanded by, church, by Christ for the church. So, baptism and Lord's Supper are like, like seeing the gospel visually. Uh, we talk about the gospel weekly. Like, if you've been with us for a little while, you know that gospel comes up in almost every conversation. Every Sunday is focused on the work on the finished work of Christ, but this is a visual representation of the gospel. And Christians throughout time have, have named this differently, all right? So some people call baptism and Lord's Supper by different names. Some called it sacraments. Maybe you have heard, heard it that way. Some people have ca- called it ordinances. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you call them as long as we explain what we mean by them. And here's what we mean by these words. As an ordinance or a sacrament is a command of Jesus instituted, instituted for the church as an outward, visible sign of an inward, invisible reality. So it's, like, it's a command that Jesus gave to the church to display what Jesus accomplished on the cross and how we are united with Christ. So these ordinances teach us not by words, but by pictures and by by actions. In fact, uh, they, they include all five senses when we partake at the table or baptism, right? And so, so they both give us this incredible, tangible visual that teaches our heart some of the most important realities of the gospel. 
So first, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, right? He instituted the Lord's Supper right before he goes to the cross. In Matthew 26, 26 to 29, we read this. He says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in the Father's kingdom. So Jesus was celebrating the Passover meal with his closest friends, and he knew that he was about to go to the cross. And so he says, take it, take, eat, this is my body. Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus is instituting it, instituting this table. It's that visual, tangible symbol of what he is about to do. Let's stop there for a second. Now let's go to the baptism. How did he institute the baptism? In Matthew 28, 19, and 20, this is the Great Commission. You have heard this many, many times. Uh, Matthew uh, 28 and 20, he says this, Go therefore... And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded to you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the ages, right? So, so he's telling them um, to go and, and baptize them. So, so Jesus commands his disciples to go and share the love that's inside of them. And, and as his love, God's love, transforms hearts, then you're baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit. Both the Lord's Supper and baptism were given to us by Christ himself. Both of them are commands from Jesus. And he gave them for the body of believers. So he gave them as a gift to the church. And last week we had to define the church. And the way we define the church as it's, it's anyone who has been purchased by the blood of Christ throughout time. And so now that, that's the definition of the big C church. And these sacraments are to be practiced at the local level. Both of these are for the church together experiencing what Christ accomplished on the cross. So if you're sitting at home and you're taking a bath or maybe you're swimming in the pool and you dunk your head under the water, that's not baptism, right? Or... or it, it, because it's not practicing this together as a church family. You, you don't pull, pull a nacho libre and take a bowl and, and, and splash some it on your wife. Like, that's, that's not a baptism either. If you're having a glass of wine and you grab a piece of bread to go along with it, that's not communion. It's just bread and wine, right? So Jesus gave these sacraments to the body. He gave them to the body, to the church, to the family, because we're not individuals, but we belong together. We are a family. We are a church family. Okay, now let's look and dive deeper into each of these sacraments. So baptism, first baptism, what, baptism, what is it? Our statement says this, baptism is connected with entrance into a new covenant. Community representing union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So the first thing to notice about the statement is that baptism has to do with entrance into the new covenant community. So what kind of entrance are we talking about here? Are we talking about salvation here or something else? 
Well, we believe baptism is a representation of entrance into the new covenant in the same way birth certificate is a representation of birth. Birth has already taken place, but the birth certificate is the statement that proves that the child has come into the world and that child is a citizen of its country of birth, right? So when we are baptized, we are becoming members of the Christian church. So this is not dealing with salvation, but dealing with, the, with our identification with Christ. So baptism does not save us. The reason I say this is because our Catholic brothers and sisters believe that baptism is necessary for salvation. They believe that the act of baptism itself causes regeneration. And this is why they baptize babies as soon as possible so the babies are regenerated. And we oppose this view because this view goes against the scriptures and ultimately goes against the gospel. We are saved by grace alone and Christ alone, not by grace alone and Christ alone through baptism, right? We don't, we don't add something to the gospel that, because that's, that's, adding, that's adding something to Christ. It's adding the works to salvation. We can't, we can't earn salvation by our action. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast. So salvation is not our doing. It is, is, it is God in his grace who pulls us out of darkness into the light. So baptism does not save. There's another view. There's another view, and this view is called Protestant Pado-Baptist view. And you may have heard about it, right? So pedo means child. So this is a view that baptizes, or it's a baptism that should include babies and children. You may have, you may have grew up in this kind of uh, view. Un unlike the Catholic Church, this view does not oppose Scripture. This is not something that... The, the, that opposes scripture. A lot of Presbyterian churches, Anglican churches, believe that baptism is a sign of the covenant, that God makes his covenant with families in the same way he did in the Old Testament. So it's, it's, it's not seen as a sign of salvation, but as a sign of belonging to a community of God's people, uh, of belonging to the church family. This view connects baptism with circumcision from the Old Testament. Old Testament, circumcision was an outward sign of entrance into the covenant community. And so baptism is viewed as a replacement for circumcision. This view does not, again, oppose scripture. So if you're sitting there and you're like, this is heresy, it's not heresy. This does not oppose scripture. In the book of Acts, we see the apostles uh, baptize new believers and their families, and Pado-Baptists would say that, that we can't know for sure that the entire family has come to faith, but they baptize the whole family. And so uh, baptism is viewed as a sign, like circumcision, that this family will be part of the covenantal or covenant community. In other words, the church with the children being raised under the teaching and instruction of faith. But the thing is, the Bible doesn't, doesn't discuss it explicitly. Uh, in fact, there are no commands. There's no commands in the Bible, neither in, uh, in the New Testament, either to baptize infants or not to baptize infants. 
Therefore, paedo-baptists believe that all children of the believing parents are baptized as a sign of inclusion in the covenant community, the church. Again, they don't see it as salvific, as in baptism doesn't bring about salvation. Salvation, again, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But while paedo-baptists view baptism as a sign of inclusion in the covenant community, we we view baptism as a sign of inclusion into a new covenant. So let me unpack this. We see it as a picture or a sign of what Christ has already done, uh, unifying a believer unto himself. And we see this in Romans 6. Uh, This is the passage that we're going to walk through. So, So grab a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black one in front of you. I want you to see this in the Bible. So go to Romans 6. We're going to be starting in verse 3. It's a lengthy passage, so I'm going to read all through it, and then I'm going to come back and unpack it really quickly. So Romans 6, starting verse 3. Romans 6 is, uh, Roman is after, Romans is after Acts. So there's four Gospels, Acts, then Romans. Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in a newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God and Christ Jesus. So, Let me walk through and and show this beautiful picture that Romans 6 is showing us. There are four things I want to point out really quickly. So first one, baptism communicates union with Christ and his body, right? Romans 6.3 says all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, uh, are baptized into his death. Uh, The one who's being baptized So talking about a person who is about to be lowered into the water. So the the one who's being baptized is lowered into the water to symbolize the death of of who they were apart from Christ, right? So, So this beautiful image representing their old life going down. It's an image of total identification with Christ. The person I was, a condemned sinner, has been buried just as Christ was buried. I'm nothing apart from him. And so it's a beautiful picture to see a believer lowered into the water as Christ was lowered into the tomb. This is the image that the condemnation of sin is forever buried and that Jesus is now our all in all. So that's the first thing. Second thing, baptism communicates death to our old life. When someone is baptized, they're communicating a death to the former way of life or or the ongoing habitual life of sin. And when I say that, uh, the first question that pops up, what will they sin after baptism? Of course, absolutely. We're all still going to be a people who struggle with sin. 
But in baptism, they're communicating Romans 6, 6. Our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Uh, so the enslaved to sin is the, the key here. Uh, Martin Luther, a great Protestant reformer, he, he often said there's, no, there's on earth no greater comfort than baptism. And he famously would fight against sin and temptation uh, by preaching to him, I am baptized. I am baptized. Why? Because baptism proclaims our old self was crucified with Jesus. Sin is no longer the power in our lives. Jesus is. We, we have the Spirit living in us. Right? And so that, that moves us to the next point, that baptism communicates new life in Christ. Paul says in Romans 6, 4, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So in the same way that being lowered into the water is symbolic of being buried with Christ, being brought out of water is symbolic of being raised to new life as Christ was raised from the dead. Showing this beautiful picture, the resurrection isn't just a, a future hope for us, but we have new life now. And finally, baptism communicates the gospel, ultimately. The visual picture of the gospel. The, those who are, who are baptized are declaring the gospel to their own hearts and to those around them, right? In baptism as a church, we're declaring the very thing Paul says in Romans 6, that our old selves were crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. Death no longer has dominion or rule over, over Jesus. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So, so you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So baptism puts this gospel on display. It's not just being heard, it's being seen right there in front of you. you see, baptism is screaming the gospel. It's screaming. It's, it's, it's showing us. It's, a, it's like a show and tell. Shows us that the, the, in water what Christ has done in us to unite us to himself. And the thing is, we can flip through the rest of New Testament and see this played out over and over and over. Where God takes a dead heart and brings that heart to life, and then baptism follows that reality. We see people profess with their mouth that Jesus is the Lord and Savior, and then they proclaim it through baptism. And that is the reason... We as a church don't baptize infants. They, they can't communicate the gospel. They can't communicate the life change act of God in their hearts. So instead, what we do, we, we, we have this thing, if you've been with us for a little while, during Father's Day, parents in our church make a covenant before the church to raise their kids in a gospel manner. And we, the church, then covenant to the parents to help support them and their, and their, and their children as they grow in the gospel. So you see, it's a family community thing, but we're not going to be messing with the baptism where, where we don't see it, right? 
And the thing is, but as soon as the kid believes, however old he is, declares their faith in the gospel, we will baptize them. Maybe you're thinking then, what about my 13-year-old son or what about my 7-year-old daughter? How, how do I know when they'll be ready? Well, parents, you know, your, your, you know the heart of your child a lot better than we do or anyone else in this room. So if they confess the gospel and claim to be a child of God, then it's possible, again, it's possible that baptism could be their next step. We'll heavily lean on you and your wisdom in this conversation. Age is a number, but you as a parent know your kid's heart. What about those who may have been baptized as infants now, but are now, now hearing that we don't land there? What, what, about, what about you? Should you get rebaptized? Well, the thing is, it's not so clear cut. Uh, it would be a better conversation that we should grab together over a cup of coffee, sit down, and I want to hear your story. It depends on the tradition that you are coming out of. Uh, maybe if you're coming out of a tradition that says baptism was salvific, meaning that, 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 that it brought salvation, then the conversation will go one way. If you're coming out of a tradition that didn't believe it was a sign of salvation, then that conversation will go differently. Ultimately, we will encourage baptism for anyone who is saved by the grace of God. It is one of the most beautiful, most powerful expression of what Jesus has done in saving you and raising you to new life. The other most powerful expression is the Lord's table or communion. So kind of switching gears, right? We talked about baptism now. Let's talk about the Lord's table. Our statement says the Lord's Supper is connected with ongoing covenant renewal as a remembrance of the finished work of Christ on the cross. So let's read a passage that we often read when we partake at this table. So it's 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 26. Paul is talking here and says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he has given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the first thing to notice about this, about, is, is, that it, all of this is about remembrance. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And, and the thing is, we need this kind of reminder because we have a tendency to forget. We have a tendency to forget. Uh, and, and I don't need to even run through the scripture yet, but just think of your life and how your heart is able to forget the gospel almost daily. My, my heart surely does. But if you look through the church history of the people of God in the scripture, we notice that the people of God are prone to forget. They forget the goodness and the grace of God over and over and over. And God, in His grace, has left signs for us to look at and remember His grace and goodness. He knows that too often we're, we're not people of faith, but of sight. And we need these kind of reminders. 
Uh, one place we see this is God setting reminders is in the book of Joshua. So let's go to the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord when it passes over the Jordan, and the waters of the Jordan were cut off, so these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever." Right? So they took these huge stones just to be reminded that God provided a way for them to cross over on the dry ground. They, they can come back and see how God provided. In the same way Jesus is saying, you will tend to forget. My people always tended to forget. So I'm going to give you this as a, as a sacrament so that when you gather, when you gather as a family, you will remember that I am for you, not against you. You will remember that my body was broken. You will remember that my blood was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. You will remember that in my death, your sins died too. You will remember that in my resurrection, you will live in eternity in communion, we remember what Christ has done. We remember each week that Jesus paid our enormous debt in full. We remember that we live a life not as orphans anymore, but as adopted kids. We remember that forgiveness is our daily reality because of Christ. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, our sin was nailed with him. His blood was shed so that we can be cleansed of our guilt of sin completely forever. This is the outward visible sign, like baptism, of an inward invisible reality. When we gather and eat the bread and drink the wine, we are showing physically visibly that we're united with Christ because of his work on the cross, his body broken, his blood shed. Here's the thing, though. We don't believe that the bread or the wine somehow magically transforms into actual body or blood of Christ. We simply believe that it's a sign or a symbol. It's like those stones by the river. Look at this and remember what God has done for you. Well, let's get practical for a second. Maybe the question is, who can participate at this table? Who, who, who can take communion? Well, anyone who believes that Jesus, what Jesus accomplished on the cross. It's anyone who proclaims that they are a sinner in need of a Savior. It's anyone who believes that Savior is Jesus. So the question then is, can kids participate? Again, we lean on you, parents. We lean on you for this because you know their hearts well. And if, they have, if you have seen their faith active in their lives and you feel comfortable for this and to, for them to partake at the table, then we'll trust your insight. We will trust your insight if you are bringing your kid to this table. What if they have not been baptized? Well, these two pictures go hand in hand, but they're not exclusive. 
This means that we don't require one before the other. If you partake in one, then you should seriously consider the other. Maybe, maybe you have wondered why we have communion weekly now. Right? So maybe you're thinking, okay, I come from a tradition that doesn't practice communion weekly. Why do you have this table weekly? Well, Scripture doesn't mandate how often we should celebrate this table. But we want to do it regularly because we want to remember over and over what Christ has done. As often as you do this, you do it in remembrance of me. That's what Jesus said. So the question I would have for you is, why wouldn't we want to celebrate what Christ has done weekly? These gifts that Jesus himself gave us help us stay centered on him. It helps us stay centered on the gospel. They keep our eyes focused on it. We speak the gospel weekly and we see the gospel weekly as well. So I don't know how these sacraments hit you today. I don't. I don't, I, I don't know if, you, if you're hearing this for the first time, all the insides of, and out of that. Maybe you're in here and you have been your own savior and, and, and you can't do it anymore. You're kind of tired. You've been going really hard trying to save your life and you just need the savior. Maybe you have been running and feel distant from God. You know, when we were talking about weary and heavy laden earlier, you were thinking, that's me. That was my heart. And you just need a reminder that Jesus gave his own body for you to save you. He cares deeply about you. So maybe, maybe you ask God to draw you back to himself. Maybe you have, been, you have been a believer for years and walked with God for years, but you have not considered baptism because it kind of carries this like, well, I feel kind of shame or I feel kind of weird because now I'm an adult who will get baptized, but like I believed in God for 10 years. Maybe the Holy Spirit is saying, consider baptism. And I'll just say, let's talk. Uh, you know, may, maybe that conversation is a little bit different than you think. I would love to sit down and talk to you. I'd love to answer any questions and even like any thoughts from this that you might be able to have. And maybe encourage you to proclaim the invisible reality of what God has done in you through this outward visible sign. So today, today we're going to celebrate both of these, right? We're going to celebrate baptism and communion. And, and as we participate in these sacred symbols that Jesus commanded, let them sink into your heart. Like, let them sink into your heart. Let them sink into your bones. Don't let this be like it's another thing that you're like, okay, take in the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, and you take it, and then, you know, you see the baptism, you're like, oh, cool, cool, cool. No, like, see it as a visible gospel for you today. See it where, where maybe there's a disconnect in your heart from the gospel. Because this is something that God gave us to, to remind us, to show us. So if your faith is weary or you feel like you have no faith at all, let these images, these visible, uh, visible visual aids give 
given to you by God of death and new life, of the cross and resurrection. Let them reawaken your heart to the presence of the one who loves you. Let me, let me pray for us.